It's been five years since Confluent was born, and since then, there's been a lot of development growth around Apache Kafka and the adoption of event streaming in general. Today, I had the privilege of celebrating Confluent's birthday with CEO and co-founder Jay Kreps, who obviously has been there since the very start. As one of the co-creators of Apache Kafka, I asked Jay to share the story on how Kafka came to be and the journey of starting Confluent and how his vision for event streaming has changed over the years. You'll get to hear that and more on today's episode of Streaming Audio, a podcast about Kafka, Confluent, and the cloud. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Streaming Audio. I am delighted to have with me today in the virtual studio, Jay Kreps, co-founder and CEO of Confluent. Jay, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. I think a lot of people who listen to this know who you are, so I wasn't going to do the normal like build the drama of here's this person and I'll let him tell you his title. Like you're you, we know who you are and we're really glad. I'm really glad to have you on. I'm excited. Yes, now. I kind of um it Confluent is uh, turning five, and that's uh, that's a decent age for a startup. And I think for a startup of our size, it's uh, it's a it's pretty darn good age. Um, but given you know people at birthdays, uh, people are looking forward and looking back and kind of evaluating things. And it seemed like a fun time, really, to get you on the show and talk about some of the history that I think you have unique access to of where we've been as a company, where Kafka has been as a project. Uh, and so that's that's really what uh, I wanted to talk about. With that in mind, there's, you know, when I, when I first started thinking about this, I thought there's this legend of you like rage coding the original Kafka code, sort of primordial Kafka over Christmas break one time. Uh, now I know the story of Kafka is clearly a lot bigger than the story of you. Um, but it, number one, is that legend true? And what were you working on at the time that made that seem like the thing to do? Yeah. I think the nature of these stories is they're always a little bit true, right? But but it's not quite like you know you got hit in the head with the apple and then you just invented it on the spot. Like the, you know, the reality was at LinkedIn, there was you know, all these different data sources. And we were thinking about how to try and integrate that. And I'd run the team that uh, kind of owned the Hadoop infrastructure and owned a lot of the real-time kind of data-driven product offerings. And we were kind of always struggling with the problem set and just kind of marinating in it. And um, we had a team that kind of collected some of the event data. Uh, and that team had a system, I think it was called WebTrack or something like that. And it was the system that was just always breaking and losing all the data. And it was kind of the worst combination of, you know, ad hoc technology and batch oriented stuff. And it, and it didn't really cover any other data source. Like it didn't cover any of the things in the databases. And so I think it was more just kind of having that pain for a long time was, was kind of the real origin. And then uh, eventually, yeah, I did get kind of worked up and wanted to just do something about it. And that was, the you know the kind of initial coding which you know wasn't entirely over the the christmas break i think it was a combination of a christmas break and a, a trip out to pittsburgh for my grandmother's birthday or something like that maybe it was my cousin's wedding i'm, I'm not sure so so it was these you know long chunks of time where you're either stuck on a plane or you're kind of in the house and it's cold and uh uh, that was enough time to 
you know, get something prototyped. And of course, you know, it, it was a pretty simple system at that point. So all the all the good code came later. <laughs> right. But I, I, I think they got rid of all that bad code by now. Yeah, I would expect uh, that to have evolved out. That was the origin. It was it was actually, you know, easy enough to write the early code. It was hard to get the project funded at LinkedIn because, you know, this this failing system was actually owned by another team that kind of felt like we were criticizing their thing, and it turned into kind of this big organizational mess as we eventually took it over. Uh, but we did eventually get it off the ground, and uh, it became really important in the architecture of LinkedIn over time. Yeah, yeah, as uh, as history has borne out, and we've had guests on the podcast who have talked about that very thing. You know, the the centrality of sort of contemporary Kafka uh, to LinkedIn's architecture and how that evolution took place. A good insight there, just about I guess software engineering in general. When you have, you know, when you say, "Hey, I want a distributed log," and you you know, like f- four or five distributed con- distributed systems concepts, which you did at the time. This was not your first rodeo in terms of of data infrastructure projects. You can you can do that prototype rage coding and build a thing that works, but then maturity as a product and a piece of infrastructure is a horse of a radically different color. Yeah, that's right. I think uh, I pitched the project by saying it would, you know, only take three months and solve all of our problems. And, uh, you know, maybe it did solve a lot of the problems, but it it took a little more than three months since we're still basically working on the same problem 10 years yes. later. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the, um, the moral of the story is never believe software engineers when they tell you a a timeline. If something works well, then people just want you to do it better and better. Exactly. And if you're listening to this podcast and you don't know that somehow, then, well, I guess now you do. Um, but yeah, no, that that's that's how these things go. So uh, then uh, you built that and you started using it. And you said you had this, you know, a little bit of an organizational struggle to get it funded, but you did get it funded and a team formed that did that ongoing maintenance and um, you know, it always it always grows hair and needs needs to do more. At some point, and this, so I always point out to listeners. Sometimes I ask questions because I know the answer, but I want everybody else to know the answer. And sometimes I'm asking questions because I don't know, and um, I actually don't quite know. I guess I could do the math, but how long between that event and you know the the project getting funded and you starting to use it and everything? Um, to when you started the company, is that about five years? Uh, yeah, it was. It was probably about that. I uh, I, I think it was kind of end of two thousand nine to the early two thousand ten was when we started uh, working on it, and it took a while to get it into production. And then there was a you know whole sequence of ramping it up and open sourcing it. And the you know, the first two people on the team were uh, June Rao and, and Neha Narketi, uh, who ended up co-founding Confluent. So I guess it was a good good early uh, team. Uh, with the three of us, so one may, one might say dream team. Yeah, so so you know we had kind of big aspirations for the technology early on. It was, you know, it was designed to be something that could be open sourced from early on, and it was designed to be something that would be broadly useful. You know, not mm-hmm. something that would just solve the the two or three problems that LinkedIn immediately had, but something that would like go solve this everywhere. And so we we had high hopes for it, and then as we you know as we saw it kind of succeed in the rest of the world. As it started to get open source adoption, we thought, "Hey, you know, this is this is really a big deal, but it's um, it's not really going to go mainstream on its own just as a GitHub 
project and it really needs you know much higher level of investment than just you know three or four people at linkedin and it it also needs you know just that push to kind of take off in the world and and so that was why we left to start a company awesome point there and a little bit of a hobby horse of mine i it, this is a distraction we won't talk about this for long but uh, i would like uh like there needs to be some proper business scholarship uh somebody to really gather some data and look into this but we have kind of the the myth of the basement coder, the heroic basement coder, which you happen to fit perfectly, right? That's the actual story of the initial code. And we think, oh, yeah, here's this wildly successful open source project. And it's all fueled by these heroic basement coders at night or something like that. When in reality, you know, you just said uh, what you just said is quite true. And I, my hypothesis is this is always the case for broadly successful open source projects is that they do need that investment really, you know, to, to be, to go from, I hacked this and it does a thing. Uh, if you treat it very carefully and feed it and water it and keep it between, you know, 71 and a half and 72.1 degrees Fahrenheit, you go from there to here's a robust product that can power the world. Well, uh, I see it. I see it a little differently. Like there's, I think there's a whole range of things that are open source. And, you know, some of these are actually these very small in scope things, you know, they're typically libraries, they're kind of easy to build and test, they have a pretty limited scope of what they do. And I, I think a lot of those work pretty well as, you know, the kind of evening and weekend uh, volunteer projects. And, and I, you know, been... in a sense, they would be, you know, the, the trying to add, you know, a real company behind it or around it would uh, you know, make it worse, not better. Would be, and it would be weird. Yeah, those have been my open source contributions, like little Gradle yeah. plugins yeah. that do this yeah. or that. You know, they're cool, and they help people, but it's not a thing. I, I think there's another set of things where, you know, there's you know just a really massive chunk of R and D to be done, and, and there it is important to th- figure out how you know how does that get funded. You know, even uh, yeah, you know, I think it's even harder if the kind of end state you're building towards isn't totally known. You know, I think one of the advantages that some of the early open source like Linux and MySQL had was in a sense, it was kind of a, you know, better implementation of a known interface. And, uh, you know, that kind of makes it easier to collaborate with little bits contributed here and there. But I think, uh, you know, anything where you're trying to figure out what the end state is while you build it, and there's just a really material amount of, you know, work to be done on it, you do have to figure out you know, how to fund it. Um, we were originally doing that, you know, primarily with contributions from within LinkedIn. And, you know, that was, it was okay, but it was ultimately a very small team trying to solve a really big problem. Right. And so, so it was, you know, kind of, uh, I think maybe while we were there, it, it, the team probably peaked at five or six people. And, oh, wow. um, you know, it just, it just wasn't really enough to do nearly as much as, as we hoped to, to kind of complete the vision. Um, so, so that was one of the exciting things about Confluent was being able to really, um, you know, kind of align the contribution with what the rest of the world wanted and, and not just be solving the problems of one company and being able to take up the level of investment uh, in the project as well. Yeah, which is, I guess, which you need if you want to do a thing that is of service broadly to kind of potentially everybody. Um, otherwise, it's, it's going to be pegged to what that one company wants. Yeah, yeah, I think that's definitely true. I think the um, you know the areas where it's hard from within you know one of those tech companies to you know make an open source project successful is all the stuff that kind of helps you get started, helps integrate it into you know the the environments people would have. You, you know that you tend to do a good job of the 
does it run at scale in our particular environment? And right. everything else outside of that is a little bit hard, uh, right. you know, a little bit hard to find time for. Yeah, well, it's, and that that is rational on the part of uh, of that sponsor. So when you started the company, you know, you got from there and it's four or five years later, and you're like, okay, this thing has legs. Let's start a company. Back then, again, at birthday time, reflecting back on the past, what did you think would be the hard part? Uh, well, I mean, I know you come at this as not just an engineer, but one of the you know key engineers on the project. Did you think engineering problems would be hard or was it, you know, hiring or where do you get revenue and what, what seemed difficult back then? Yeah, I think probably early on, you know, the, the, the big concern we had was, you know, would this kind of technology and vision catch on outside of Silicon Valley? And, you know, at that point we'd had really good adoption from the kind of big, large scale tech companies and then a smattering of adoption outside of Silicon Valley or the, you know, it's, it's not really Silicon Valley, the, the geographical location, but really the, you know, the kind of large scale tech companies. And uh, so, so that was the, you know, that was an area of concern. And then beyond that, the, the three founders were all, you know, engineers that knew this technology and product space well, but, you know, had no background in, in kind of enterprise go to market or anything like that. And so, sure. what, you know, the, a lot business? of the, <laughs> yeah, a lot of the initial challenge was, okay, great. Like, you know, is this going to catch on elsewhere and are we going to be able to build a viable business uh, that, you know, in this area? And, um, you know, I think one of the exciting things about it was it it became clear pretty quickly that it was definitely going to catch on and be, you know, if, if anything, an even bigger deal outside of the core tech companies that those companies had, you know, more diversity and older systems and, just were larger and, you know, had more lines of business and acquisitions and things that had to integrate. And so in some sense, something that could act as the central nervous system across it, its value is proportional to the complexity of all the digital investments, right? And so, you know, in a lot of these uh, other companies, you know, they're basically just much more complicated. And so the value of what we were doing was actually higher. I think people don't realize that, but tech companies are actually surprisingly simple, internally in large part because they're new, uh, but also because they kind of compulsively rebuild the technology on the new stack and, and they're more disciplined about their investments. And, um, you know, I think Kafka is definitely useful in those environments, but the, it's even more useful, you know, in, inside of a company that, you know, has much more complexity and sprawl because, you know, you really then need this integration layer. You're not talking about integrating the, you know, big three data systems because the, the company may have hundreds of them. That's such a good point because in a, in a- in a tech company, you have a website and a mobile app experience and could be fiendishly complex and all kinds of horrible problems of scale and blah, blah, blah. But it's one thing. And in an insurance company that's been using computers for, you know, 50 or 60 years, huh, there's, there's a few systems in there. And of course, Kafka shows its value in getting those things to talk. Yeah, that's right. One one of the the job questions that we got early on from customers was, you know, hey, how do you integrate this with mainframes? And we were like, like what? Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And sure enough, it turns out like really important parts of the economy are run off of mainframes, and that's actually a really, you know, valuable area where data is. And in a lot of companies, being able to open that up to a modern stack is a really valuable problem to solve. And you know, the technology does it well, but uh, but. But we, I don't think we really appreciated 
the full diversity of you know what the internals of, of kind of large enterprises outside of Silicon Valley look like. Absolutely, absolutely. They don't they don't do them in Soma, but uh, they do them in the world. And yeah, that's right. Money. That's right. You know, I think that um, you know it's an interesting thing uh, that I, I they actually think a lot of companies miss. You know, if the if the founders are uh, techies, is that you know all this new stuff, whether you know whether it's cloud or you know the new programming layers and abstractions, it's it's all coming you know in addition to a, a large running business, and that stuff gets rewritten, but it, the the cycle is slower and it takes more time. And so, understanding the story of how your technology lives with all those things is is really important. Yeah. You said something, um, you've, you said it a couple times, actually, just a, a couple minutes ago, you said when you started the company, one of the, the areas of uncertainty for you was whether this vision of stream processing would catch on. There's this broader vision, right? Um, and you also, when you were talking about uh, other successful open source projects like MySQL being early, massive success, um, you made the point that uh, there's this standard interface, like we get this, there's this data model and there's this API that just mean database to the whole world and everybody knows what that is and let's build one of those and we don't have to persuade anybody about how to use a relational database. We just have to say, hey, look, this one is as good or better than the one you would have paid a bazillion dollars for. Um, and so that kind of open source victory is there. And in contrast, you were saying, we have this stream processing argument to make. So talk to me about that. Like, has that vision changed over the past five years? And maybe, uh, if I might ask you, just kind of lay that out. Like, what what is stream processing? Yeah, I think the big, you know, the big idea was that you could build around these streams of events. We at LinkedIn had, you know, Hadoop, and we would suck in these big dumps of data, and we would run big batch processing jobs at the end of the day. But you know, because we thought about it, it didn't really make sense. Like the there was no part of LinkedIn that generated data in a batch manner. Like the the business was a continuous process, and I guess kind of everything in real life is a continuous process. So as we thought about it, it just it seemed like this weird, almost legacy of you know mainframes or you know big punch card batch processing jobs or something that you, you would align things to this kind of twenty four hour a day you know twenty four hour cycle where at night some big job kicks off and processes all the data from the you know, the previous day. So then the you know the question is like well what what kind of has held this back? You know, if if this is like a more natural way of solving the problem, why don't people do it? And I think it was two things. One, you know, to really do a lot of this stuff at the scale of a company like across all the different systems kind of required modern distributed systems techniques. And you know, the other part of it was, you know, the the kind of abstractions just weren't there. You know, the, like you have to be thinking in terms of events. You have to be thinking in terms of, you know, this kind of real-time processing that, that just wasn't where it came from. And, I, you know, I think the early applications for databases were very much these kind of, you know, human-driven things. It's like, you know, how do I build a UI that that does, you know, some basic CRUD operations that looks up records and it, you know, d- helps me do some data entry and makes me more effective. And, you know, I think the role for software now is really changing because it's, you know, it's not like you just have these individual applications that are aimed at, you know, presenting a UI to humans. The the software in a company is this much more integrated thing that um, is kind of operating large parts of the business, and so the software is much more likely to talk to other software uh, rather than just show things to humans. And so in that in that world, 
you know, it's less about the database being this kind of reactive thing that sits there and does lookups when you ask it. It's more about how things trigger and react and respond to other parts of the business, to things happening in the world. And so, um, yeah, I think we understood parts of that as we started. You know, I think we were motivated uh, originally by, you know, this kind of academic literature and stream processing and the fact that LinkedIn seemed like it needed stream processing. And by the fact that there was no stream processing that you could kind of go download and open source. And then as we got into that problem, we realized, okay, if you want to do stream processing, you first need like a stream. Right, like that. <laughs> you know, the, the, that would be nice. Yeah, and so so that was how we started with Kafka. It was like we thought, well, just capture these streams across the company. If you can do that, the processing could happen in your uh, you know kind of handwritten code, or you could you know build on top of that some kind of layer that did this. And and so we started then with something lower level than stream processing, which was just you know stream storage basically, which is kind of what the core of Kafka does, which is just read and write. And, and store uh, events and, and do it in a way that allows you to build these kind of scalable applications around it. And then we started um, almost immediately playing with the, you know, the possibility of stream processing abstractions on top of it. And uh, eventually at LinkedIn created a system called SAMSA, which isn't you know, heavily used outside, but, but is still around. Uh, and then eventually started integrating some of that into Kafka with the Kafka Streams API. And then at Confluent, we've created uh, KSQL, which you know we think is super exciting. Which is, you know, you know, attempting to really provide SQL capabilities and really act, you know, much more like a, a kind of database uh, for streams of data. You know, if you think about it, Kafka is almost like a, a file system for streams of data, and that that's what it does is store this big log. Um, but the way people build applications, you, you usually don't build directly on top of the the file system, where you're kind of poking around with individual bytes in a manual way. You usually build with kind of a higher level interface, like a relational database, and and we think KSQL has the the possibility to be something like that, where you can work with these streams of events in a much higher level way, in a much more productive way, and you know with basically a lot less code. All right, um, I want to come back to KSQL. Uh, that's definitely an interesting thing to talk about. But the vision that you just laid out for stream processing, I recognize as uh, the contemporary one. Um, I mean, that sounds like exactly what I talk about to people and, and what I know you talk about. Um, how, uh, how much has that evolved? Was, do, you think, do you feel like that was in place? And I know it, it can be hard to remember some things like this because you can like retrofit your memory of an idea to your contemporary understanding of it. But were you pretty much there five years ago? Um, a lot of it was there. I think um, a lot of what evolved, you know, the two major things that evolved was, you know, one, I think we got better at explaining the vision to other people. Uh, early on, um, you know, we really didn't know how to talk about this stuff. And it made it difficult, actually, as we were trying to explain what we'd done. We weren't sure, like, should we call it, you know, a messaging system? Like, what was the, you know, the exact kind of reasoning or use case that it was for because we felt like look this is broadly applicable we don't want to limit it we don't feel like it's just like another message queue that's not really the goal and so we really struggled early on i think the first few years one of the reasons there was much less open source adoption after it was open sourced was was really just people didn't have a easy category to put it into so so that was one was like hey how do you talk about this stuff and, and one of the big evolutions there was you know really talking about events um, which is actually the important thing. Like, hey, there's some event. It's something that happened in the company. Like, people get that concept. Um, we had that internally, and actually, all the 
you know, message names in LinkedIn were, were modeled around events. And that, that was a big part of the idea. But we, we weren't sure if we could really communicate that outwards. And I, I think that's actually just caught on where for a bunch of reasons now events are more central in software engineering. And so the ideas are just much more natural when you're thinking about uh, data and microservice communication and so on. So, so that evolved significantly. I think the, the other big thing was we really didn't understand the full breadth of use cases. So, for example, we had no idea about the Internet of Things use cases, which you know is actually a really big area where you know there's things happening out in the world, and you need this kind of software stack that reacts and responds to that uh, as it happens. And that's kind of the pattern of those Internet of Things use cases, I think, by and large. And a traditional relational database is actually a, a pretty poor fit because it works the other way around. It's it's actually a great fit for a web app where you know, you know, the UI kind of drives the the action on the data side. You know, it's a really poor fit for something that's trying to model changes in the world and react to them all the time. And and so we we had no idea about that. You know, so we, we knew a lot about these kind of internals of a social network. Uh, we knew a lot about these, uh, you know, kind of monitoring and real-time analytics use cases and services that would feed off of and respond to this data, but we didn't, you know, we, we had no idea about these dim- domains outside that, that we just hadn't interacted with. Nice, nice. Yeah, and it uh, you were kind of implicitly describing things like that that we identify uh, by the buzzwords reactive microservices, for example. You were you were talking about them without saying those words, which I appreciate. Um, and it's interesting that that was a part of the vision initially, even though that buzzword um, I think followed by a few years, uh, at least. Yeah, yeah. At least when I was at LinkedIn, yeah, I don't, I don't think people are talking as much about microservices. I think that came later. We internally had all these services and the goal was to build these services that would feed off of, you know, event streams. But we, there, you know, there wasn't a good word for what to call that. We weren't even right. sure if you would really call it a, a service because it, you know, that, that in, in our mind was so tied to uh, HTTP uh, and kind of request response. We just wasn't, weren't even sure if it qualified as a service anymore if it was taking right. a stream of events. Um, okay. so, so I think the world has kind of evolved a little bit you know, around this type of thinking, uh, which just kind of makes our job easier. But, but it is one of the harder things if you're coming with something relatively new, then just figuring out how to explain it to people is, is a big part of the challenge. Right. Started having customers, and we certainly do now. Um, and I just I wonder what are some of them that you've been a part of? Um, and I know as, as CEO, you're certainly not involved in every customer, but who are some that you've been a part of that really, uh, I guess, encourage you in terms of, of that vision becoming real or, you know, that make you think, all right, what I'm doing here is really going to make a big impact and can help people at scale and can be useful at scale, uh, or can transform the way software is built. Any, any way you want to slice that, what are some, some customer stories that, uh, get you excited? There's a ton of them, actually. Um, you know, probably my favorite part of my job is actually getting to go and kind of hear how people apply this technology in these really different business domains. You, you know, it's like, okay, how does how does a retailer use events in Kafka and stream processing? And how, how, do, how do you model an insurance claim as a series of events? I mean, I, I think it's totally fascinating. And it's also your goal if you build something like this, your goal is to kind of see it get used in the world. And if you start a company, your goal is to you know help these other companies use your product and and be successful. So it's you know it's one of the 
most fun parts. Um, I think about you know being an entrepreneur or running a business or creating a you know an infrastructure product is actually seeing that used in the world and you know helping to make these other businesses better. Um, you know, a couple there's there's more of these than you know we could probably get into on this podcast, but a couple that I think are really cool. You know, I think the ride sharing area generally is you know that all these companies use Kafka. Um, you know, Lyft I think is a is a public customer reference of ours. The use cases are just amazing. Where they're you know they're tracking all these drivers and they're computing supply and demand and they're gathering all the data to you know make good routing decisions. I, I think that integration of things happening in the real world with software systems and all the kind of dynamic logistics and pricing and operationalization and real time analytics. I, I, I think that's just kind of the prototype of what the direction of the the rest of the world is going. You know, if you, if you look at other businesses, I think integrating some of that uh, into the operation of other businesses is, is going to be, you know, kind of, kind of a big thing that happens over the next five or 10 years. And, and so I think that's a, you know, phenomenally cool use case. You know, another use case I think is cool that, you know, I like just because as we were starting with Kafka, we kind of started with this almost big data use cases, the kind of high volume, low value data. And then, you know, over time we had to really build the, you know, both the trust and the, you know, kind of fault tolerance capabilities to, to earn the trust, to be able to take on more and more core use cases. And so now, you know, even now there's there's a number of databases and, and core storage systems that, that that run off of Kafka. And, you know, one of the things I think is most validating about that is there, there's a really cool use case with uh, Euronext, which is, you know, it's, it's, you know, one of the major stock exchanges in uh, Europe. And they're, they're using Kafka as this kind of core persistence layer for each trade and then model all the kind of downstream processing and analytics and compliance work that happens uh, on a trade uh, as, as a kind of stream processing that happens in reaction to that event. And you know, I think it's cool just because it's so mission critical and you know, kind of just core to the functioning of the economy. If you're, if you're kind of at the heart of a stock exchange, that's about as you know, uh, important to use case as you could have. And uh, so, so I was really excited to, to see that when they did a really cool uh, video with us on, on some of the stuff that they did that's on our website. Uh, we'll be sure to put a link to that video in the show notes. Uh, it was pretty fun. It's uh, nice and fast paced and uh, just gives you the, the idea of, like you said, they are actually moving trades in a continent-wide stock, ex- stock exchange through Kafka, which is a pretty big deal. I mean, like, like you said, if that's not validation that the technology can be used for things, I don't know what is. Um, talk to me briefly about KSQL. You mentioned it a minute ago. Um, but that's a thing that we built, uh, you know, we, we sort of started executing really Kafka apart from Confluent even started executing on a stream processing, uh, strategy. And briefly, if, if you're new to the domain, if you're new to the podcast, the basics there is that, that just pulling messages out of a log, um, is fine, but you're going to have to do things with them. And there's this small set of the usual suspects of those things, right? You'll, you'll compute aggregations, you'll deal with time windows, you'll enrich one stream of messages with another, or, you know, do something akin to a join. This is just a small number of things that you actually do when you're consuming messages. And Kafka started to get good at those. And KSQL basically addresses that same set of things. But why 
it's a super hard thing to build. Um, why did we do that? Yeah, I guess our our view was, um, you know, to really become a mainstream technology paradigm, uh, you have to really become simple and easy to use. And, you know, it's like in uh, economics, uh, I, I think they have uh, this idea of kind of the elasticity of price and supply and demand. So if, you know, the price goes down, people want to buy more, right? And in software engineering, I think it's a little bit similar where, you know, instead of price, you don't really have the price mechanism exactly. It's more like how, how difficult is it to use the tool? How, how much of a pain in the butt is it going to be? And, um, you know, so for something that's like a big pain in the butt, it has to be really the only possible solution or, or the software engineer is going to stay away from it, right? Right. And so if you, uh, if you want to make something really mainstream, you know, you have to make it easy. And the, the progress for us, you know, was really starting with something that could work across a company that would scale, that would handle, you know, the different data types from kind of high volume, low value data to like really cr- critical data and, you know, just make that available. And we, we always tried to make Kafka's APIs, you know, relatively simple, but it's still pretty low level, right? It's it's kind of giving you this log abstraction. It's letting you build applications around that, but a lot is kind of left to your code. And um, you have to kind of code up these applications and test them. And, and we, you know, from, from early on, we felt like, it, you know, it's got to be p- possible to kind of move up the stack, move, you know, up the ladder of abstraction and, and make it really easy. And we also felt like, look, you know, if you have all these streams of data, then the whole purpose is to do stuff with them. The, the, you know, the easier you can make that, the better. And so, you know, the goal with KSQL was really kind of marry something new, which is this whole world of event streams with uh, something old, which is kind of databases and SQL that, um, you know, a lot of people really know. And I, I think, you know, our goal is to really make it easy to work with this, make it approachable, make it build on kind of the techniques and, and stuff that you already, you know, you already understand. And, um, yeah, I think that's a powerful thing. And, um, you know, our, our hope as a company is to continue, you know, kind of moving up that ladder of abstraction over time and, and trying to make, you know, event streams just really, you know, the most natural way of solving a problem. And that's really core to what we're trying to achieve. If, you know, if it isn't the easiest thing, then it won't be the thing that people uh, reach for. And we, we don't want this to be a technology that's kind of only applicable for the, you know, m- you know, largest possible problems where it's like you would avoid it, except when the, the problem is so large in scale that you have no choice but to use this. We want this to be something that's, you know, useful across that whole domain from, you know, super critical low volume uh, use cases to these, you know, really high volume things. Um, and so scalability is kind of just one you know, dimension and, and not even really the most important dimension, uh, you know, for the solution that we're trying to build. I think it's a, you know, it's kind of a view that I think was maybe a little bit lost in the heyday of, of big data where there was so much focus on scalability. That I think people lost sight a little bit of like usability uh, and, just, you know, just kind of is this, is this a good platform? Uh, and, and I think, you know, that's come kind of more back to the forefront. And I think that's a really healthy thing. Very, very true. Um, I was in the NoSQL heyday, trying to teach people how to use certain of these things. And, uh, you know, the, the sales pitch was scale and you kind of had to, for, for most applications, you have to tell yourself, well, yeah, I mean, I, I could need to be as big as Amazon. Hardly anybody is now scale's not, not a thing. It's, it's, we, we need to be able to scale, but there's this, 
um, I think, larger range of scales at which the technology must be economical. It can't be go big or go home. I think that's exactly right. Like, I think, you know, fundamentally, if we want to make these event streams something that's kind of like the central nervous system across the company, it's going to have to scale, right? Like, you know, even if the individual applications are small, you add them all up, they start to get pretty big. And you want to have that central hub of what's going on. But, but yeah, you know, one of the things that annoys me most, like one of my pet peeves, is when infrastructure engineers, the people building, you know, a database or some piece of infrastructure, when they start telling people that everybody has to be an infrastructure engineer, right? That you have right. to really understand distributed systems. And like, you, you know, you'll hear this kind of lecture of like, well, you know, everybody needs to go really understand distributed systems in this modern world. And it's like, well, you know, guys, that's that's our job. Like, like we're supposed to understand how to build distributed systems and then make it easy for other people. Like we, we can't make it, you know, trivial, but we can always make it easier. And if if the answer is you have to understand everything about you know, the whole problem domain and how everything works that, you know, we kind of haven't done our jobs as well as we can. Now, look, you know, the cracks always show through in these abstractions. It's never perfect. But but whenever we can, our goal should be to, you know, take that into our domain, into the things the infrastructure, you know, makes easy for you. And and I think we should look at things like, you know, TCP. Um, you know, it, it doesn't always work. Like, it doesn't always hide the abstraction of, uh, of the network, but it does a pretty good job. Uh, of doing that so that you don't have to be thinking about packets and bytes and all of that. It ju- you know, just kind of takes that away for you. And I, I, I think, you know, these infrastructure layers higher up the stack should have that same aspiration to just become, you know, transparent, uh, become something that people can just build against, you know, without having to know how it works. Right. Uh, it is almost certain that you, for, for most values of, of you who are like enterprise software developers, almost certain that you should not be thinking about distributed systems infrastructure. Uh, you have to know, like, you know, if, if we're asking you, uh, you're going to have to write your own raft implementation. Is that okay? And, you know, you're going to have to manage distributed state and, and like all those things cannot be a part of your life as an application yeah, I, developer. I, I, I totally agree. I mean, we're, we're at kind of an intermediate stage where it's not like, you know, everything in the world of uh, stream processing and event streams and cloud community is like a solved problem that you just, you know, you can just learn the interface and not have to know anything about how it works. Right. But that that should be the goal for the people working on it. You know, it should always be to make it easier and simpler and make the abstractions better uh, so that, you know, it can become more prolifically used out in the world. Love it. Um, how about uh, cloud? Now, uh, of course, we've built a cloud product, are building a cloud product. And... What has that experience been like from the CEO's perspective, and how does it fit into you know, the overall plan? It, it seems like a, a non-negotiable part of a company like us. But what, what talk to us about cloud? Uh, yeah, it's been really interesting. So we, um, you know, at LinkedIn, of course, we ran the software and we built the software, and you, you know that there's actually wonderful things about that. Like, you know, you can uh, put improvements in and, and ship them the next day. Um, and then there's there's hard parts about it, like when it breaks, uh, they call you in the middle of the night uh, to to fix it. Um, but but I actually think it's a wonderful thing uh, for a company. I think you know it's just really recently that this kind of lowest level of of data infrastructure has been available as a service. You know, it's something that you know, really I think Amazon brought around, and and uh, you know I think it's opening up this whole world of new 
data services that you can just get a hold of without having to learn how to operate them and run them yourself. So I, I think it's just a much better experience for customers. And, and, um, and I think it's also an incredibly deep technology problem, you know, to actually make a data system that's kind of cloud native. I mean, that's a, it's a buzzword, but something where you kind of just pay for what you use, where you can kind of expand it elastically, where, you know, it, it, it can span data centers, like all of these things, um, you know, are kind of, kind of magical. And, and so it's a great thing for, uh, you know, a company to put R and D into trying to make possible for their customers. And, um, so, so as we started Confluent, we, we knew we would, uh, want to have a, a, a cloud offering, we, we kind of debated back and forth whether to start with that or start with um, the software. You know, we ended up starting with a, a software offering because we felt like, well, that way we could kind of build up the stack a little more um, and, you know, finish out the client ecosystem and finish out some of the stream processing interfaces. And I'm really glad we did that just because uh, otherwise I, I do think we would be kind of pigeonholed a little bit as a, you know, dumb, dumb queue, kind of just a, a pipeline. Ah, uh, right. But the you know what that meant was we we needed to really um, you know pretty young in the life of the company start building out this cloud offering, and um, you know it's it's definitely a hard to get a second uh, product cadence going in a young company because you're you're um, you're early on and so so uh, but you know we were lucky to have a lot of kind of DNA from people who'd done it before. And and that that kind of helped us to know that you know this is going to be important. It was going to be ultimately you know the kind of future of the business. And you know so we so we really over the course uh, of a year kind of pivoted the the full engineering team to really work in this cloud first manner where we're you know shipping features into our cloud product and then we're kind of running them for customers and then you know shipping them on premise and. Yeah, that's actually a great thing. You know, kind of going back to the LinkedIn experience, it kind of aligns the incentive, right? It makes you make your stuff work first before you uh, right. hand it out to other people to run. Um, it allows you to move a lot faster because you you can ship ship things more quickly. Uh, it makes you think upfront about the experience of of running it, and for these big distributed systems, that operational problem is a huge chunk of what's hard in the domain. So you want to have that experience. And then it, it also gives just a great experience to customers. You know, one of the unfortunate things about new data systems is, you know, depending on the company, it can take a long time to build the capability to really run a new data system as a, you know, kind of totally reliable, dependable technology. Even if the software is perfect, you have to build that capacity and hire people and, and really master it. And so I think it's a really a, a powerful thing. If you can just kind of get that instantaneously, you can just kind of instantaneously be world class at this new thing, right? And and so we, you know, we've just seen that companies that start with that are able to go much faster in their adoption and usage of it uh, than they would be, you know, if they were if they were trying to do it all themselves. You, know, you said a moment ago you were talking about uh, moving up the stack of abstraction. Uh, Grady Booch has said a lot of quotable things, but the most memorable thing to me that he says he ever said was. The history of software engineering is one of increasing levels of abstraction. You know, we bring as developers uh, essentially the same kind of noetic equipment, the same minds to the problem. Like everybody is basically as smart as everybody was ten years ago, and and you've got programmers, but you know we're trying to do more, and so we build these these more and more abstract tools, which is super obvious in stream processing, uh, less so in cloud. But you said it, and I, I think. Um, it's not just a matter of, uh, hey, let's give you a Kafka cluster uh, that you don't have to manage, but 
you know, as I've seen the evolution of the product, having a little bit of a front row seat as an insider and, you know, getting to see decisions that are made and so forth, it is, you know, it, it is a little bit of that same abstraction story. It's not just, uh, here's a cloud-based cluster that we will occasionally upgrade for you, but it is a little bit more abstract. You know, here is, here are topics, uh, that you have that are hosted and, you know, it, I think cloud as we've done it encourages developers and architects to think at a still more appropriate that is higher level of abstraction. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. I think you, you know, you see a lot of products that are kind of, you know, I, I I often call it fake cloud products, but they're they're kind of, you know, intermediate where they're they're not really taking over fully managing the service. So you're still kind of thinking about like, oh, how many, you know, servers of this do I want to allocate? And, right. you know, I, I do think the future of this stuff is, you know, getting away from servers as a unit in a data system and, and getting away to just like, okay, you know, how do I pay for it? And then you use as much as you use and you, and you pay the bill, um, you know, much more like a utility, which is kind of the original vision for cloud computing. And I, I think it's just uh, so technically hard at the data system level that, of course, you know, we're all struggling to build the systems that, that can uh, really fulfill that vision. Um, but yeah, definitely for Confluent and our experience of our product, we, we're trying to get as close to that as we can and, and just always kind of pushing, you know, closer and closer. Uh, final question. Imagine there's some other talented team of developers right now that are building something that could have the potential to turn into a great company. And this is incredibly hypothetical because, you know, it's hard to identify who those people are as any venture capitalist could tell you, but imagine you, you had access to them or they had access to you. What advice do you have for them? Yeah. I mean, it, it's definitely a really exciting time, uh, both for enterprise companies, which you can kind of, uh, take away just from the valuation those companies are getting or the, the number of IPOs that are happening in that space. But, but also I think particularly for these developer facing, you know, infrastructure layers, abstractions that are being offered as a service, um, you know, I think the world of cloud opens up uh, a whole new ability to do this uh, just much easier as a much better business than would have been possible before. Uh, and so, so yeah, I guess, you know, I, th- I think it's a great time for it. I think whenever, you know, a new platform like this opens up, um, you know, I think there's a number of companies that are kind of built around it. And uh, so, so, yeah, my, advan- my advice would be, you know, just go do it. I, I think it's hard to fully prepare for something that's new. You can try and you know, learn ahead of time, but there's there's no better way than to you know just jump in and and start swimming uh, to to really pick something up. And it's it's certainly a great time, both in terms of the you know the money that's available to fund startups, the you know the enthusiasm with which customers are actually investing and embracing new technologies. You know, I, I think it's just a great time for this type of company uh, to be born. Um, and we'll, you know, we'll see if that you know bears out uh, in the years to come. But, but yeah, my, my advice is go for it. My guest today has been Jay Krebs. Jay, thanks for being a part of Streaming Audio. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, you know what you get for listening to the end? A Kafka Summit discount code. Kafka Summit is coming up on September 30th and October 1st in downtown San Francisco. And you can get 30% off if you go to kafka-summit.org and use the discount code AUDIO19 during checkout. Just enter AUDIO19 while registering at kafka-summit.org, and that 30% off is all yours. I'd love to see you there. But hey, I hope this podcast was helpful to you. If you want to discuss it or ask a question, you can always reach out to me at at TL Berglund on Twitter. That's 
T-L-B-E-R-G-L-U-N-D. Uh, or you can leave a comment on a YouTube video or reach out in our community Slack. There's a Slack sign-up link in the show notes if you want to register there. And while you're at it, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and to this podcast wherever fine podcasts are sold. And if you subscribe through iTunes, be sure to leave us a review there. That helps other people discover the podcast, which is a good thing. Thanks for your support, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.